All right, enough about sad Greek women. Let's talk about some angry Roman dudes. I am Professor Kozlowski. Welcome back to Troy and the Trojan War. Today we are talking about Rome. Um, so we have largely ignored Rome thus far in this class because, you know, Homer is kind of the whole focus here. And while Rome is going to have a lot to do with Homer and the transmission of Homer, and we'll have a very interesting opinion about Homer and their sort of trajectory in history, they don't really contribute much to the development of Homer before they really start getting involved. Um... So it is obviously really important to sort of get an idea of what Homer is doing in his own time, what Homer is, you know, like doing for the culture of Greece generally, and then how the classical Greeks especially sort of run away with him. But since Rome is going to take over the world in like 20 minutes, uh, we should probably get a sense of who the Romans are, what their deal is, and how exactly Homer factors into their identity as well. Because, as you probably read in our little chapter on Roman history and the Cambridge Companion to Homer, it's a surprisingly big deal. Um, now, I should emphasize, Rome has not been, like, non-existent during most of our discussions in this class. You'll notice from this very handy comparative timeline that at roughly the same time as the Greek city-states are emerging, we're also getting some Roman action. Um, you'll recall that we discussed, and I'll show you the map in a little bit, some time ago, like, we talked about how the Greeks, in fact, migrated over to Italy and to Sicily. Um, at roughly the same time, there were people, in fact, living in Italy and Sicily, kind of doing their own thing. Um, so it's clear that, you know, the Greeks and the Romans have been kind of coexisting, bumping into each other from time to time, but not having a whole lot to do with each other. Um, mostly because the Romans have been keeping to themselves. Uh, so while the Greeks might go visit from time to time, the Romans don't have a huge trade investment in the Mediterranean. They haven't started their grand, like, conquering spree. Um, I mean, it is considerably later than Homer writes, uh, the Iliad that we actually get Rome the city in the first place. Um, much less the Republic and the sort of, like, military prowess that we typically associate Rome with. Um, but it should be noted that they are doing their own thing. Like, even as recent as the classical period in Greece, all of those famous playwrights and famous orators and philosophers and stuff, um, Rome is also doing their thing, setting up their republic. Over here we have the Greek Golden Age, and you can notice that it's not like 200 years after that that Rome actually conquers Greece. Um, so the Romans are doing their thing. They are engaged in their own military pursuits, engaged in their own sort of empire building, and we will talk about that today. Um, so the first thing we have to sort of set in stone is that we're backing up again. Um, we have to sort of appreciate the whole Roman picture here. And to do that, we have to back up in time, back to our archaic period, back to Homer's time itself. Um, but the first thing we need to talk about as far as, like, getting Rome straight is that Rome is a lot. There's a lot of things that happen under the supposed name of the Roman Empire. Um, and we need to emphasize that even the name Roman Empire is actually kind of limiting. Um, obviously, here on this timeline, which is really simplistic but incredibly handy, um, we can see that Rome actually has multiple distinct periods of its development. Namely, we have Archaic Rome, Rome under the kings. Many of those kings may have been apocryphal or, you know, just legendary, but either way, the Romans identify them as an important part of their history, and we should at least, like, 
be aware of their existence and their sort of legacy. Um, we've got the Roman Republic, which is the famous part, or at least the beginning of the famous part, the Romans living under the Senate. Um, this is a large part of Roman history, and the Romans themselves consider it the most important part of their history, the best part of their history in most cases, although this is brought to a fairly violent end by the Roman civil wars, as we'll discuss, and then is the stuff that you probably associate with Rome, namely the emperors, Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, and the rest. Um, before Rome actually falls around 500 AD and we get a new period in Roman history, namely the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire sort of becomes the dominant one. Um, so let's keep this in mind. Like when we are talking about Rome, it is important to note which part of Rome we are talking about. In the same way that when you say ancient Greece, it's important to note whether this is before or after the Dark Ages, whether it's the archaic period of Homer or the classical period of Plato. Um, all that is kind of significant to understanding exactly which moment in Greek history you're talking about. Likewise, for the Romans, you got to know what their government looks like in order to appreciate what's actually happening. So let's start with the prehistory of Rome, so to speak. Again, Rome is a combination of a number of different groups that all kind of bump into each other at roughly the same time and place. Um, and importantly, the Romans identify themselves as being the product of Greek migration. Um, like, you ask any of the major Roman historians, any of the major Roman, like, storytellers, and they will tell you the same story. Namely, Rome was founded by Aeneas. Now, keep this in mind. Like, this is a huge deal for us. On the one hand, we've emphasized throughout this class that Homer has, like, a wide-ranging effect on how the Greeks identify themselves. But we need to stress, like, right here at the outset, the Romans, too, understand themselves as being the inheritors of the Trojan War. Namely, they see themselves as the logical predecessors or the logical inheritors of the Trojan side of the Trojan War. Aeneas, the one guy who escapes the fall of Troy, apparently sails all the way from Troy over here, all the way over to Italy, and hangs out with the Latins, who we'll talk about in a moment, who will ultimately go ahead and found Rome. So Rome sees itself as being royally informed, being of royal heritage. They say, you know, we are the Romans, we inherit the power, the legacy, the royalty of Troy, just as the Greeks see themselves as being the, you know, people who inherit the power of Agamemnon and the Mycenaeans. Um, but we should also emphasize that as much as, you know, this story may very well be apocryphal, like who knows where the heck Aeneas actually landed and all that stuff, but we will definitely get back to that very soon. Um, we should also note that Aeneas, and like he lands on Rome and doesn't immediately just like kill everybody and turn it into, you know, Aeneas land. Instead, he hangs out with the people who are already there. Um, so that includes the Etruscans, who we'll talk about here, the Latins, who are, like, dwelling in the kind of whitish part, because the Latins aren't really terribly distinct as a, per as a people, except insofar as they have their own language. Um, we should also notice, though, that the entire Italian peninsula is very much colonized by the Greeks. Um, you'll notice all the blue areas across the map tend to be Greek colonies, Places where Greeks have landed and Greeks are hanging out and doing their thing. Um, the red stuff are Phoenician colonies. Phoenicia being based over here in Asia Minor. Um, 
or rather in the ancient Near East, because this is Asia Minor. Um, and you can also see that there are a couple of other players on this particular field. Egypt is still kicking around. The Illyrians are doing their thing. You know, we're not going to bump into many of these folks, but even so, recognize this is an exciting world here in the 6th century BCE and earlier. A lot of different groups of, and cultures are bumping into each other. That archaic period where we mentioned, you know, there's a lot of trade going on, there's a lot of movement, even though there isn't a whole lot of language being written down. This is the product of that, and the Romans are very much the product of this archaic period. Um, so here we have the Etruscans. The Etruscans are a very distinct culture and a very distinct group, like, as we'll see in a moment, they have a very distinct language from everything else that we're talking about these days. Um, like, the Etruscan language apparently doesn't even derive from Proto-Indo-European, which is one of those shocking things that just happens across Europe from time to time, and will frequently baffle linguists and historians, like, where did these guys come from? What is their deal? How have they managed to stand up for so long against the tide of sort of enculturation. Um, suffice it to say that the Romans see themselves as being sort of adjacent to the Etruscans but and inheriting a lot of their culture, but also being distinct from the Etruscans. The Etruscans are just one of the several people groups that sort of combine to make Rome who it is. The other ones being, again, the Latins on the one hand, and again Aeneas and the Greek-informed Trojans on the other. Um, so you'll notice that the Etruscans, at the peak of their power, like around 500 BCE, they control quite a bit of Italy, including what will one day be Rome. But their stronghold tends to be circulated around these major cities, the Etruscan League, so to speak. Um, and in these cities, that's sort of the center of their power. So Rome is always kind of on the border of the Etruscans. And you'll notice that the Etruscans very much take over the Latins before the Latins very much turn it around in the following centuries and get them back for it. Um, but one thing we should definitely note for the archaeological record, and especially as it happens with our business of Homer, um, is that even the Etruscans identify themselves as being the inheritors of the Greek world. Um, they too know the Iliad. They too believe that the Odyssey took place off their shores. Like, there's apparently a long-standing tradition among both Etruscan and Latin sailors that Odysseus's journey, the Odyssey, took place on these little islands, as opposed to all those weird islands over by Greece. Um, to the point that we can find numerous archaeological evidences for, you know, them celebrating their heritage as being derived from Odysseus. In fact, there's even a tradition uh, actually rooted in Hesiod that Odysseus and Aeneas teamed up to make this whole, like, culture a thing. That apparently Aeneas leaving Troy found Odysseus, who was trying to get home, and the two buddied up for a while, colonizing Italy and turning it into what will be the Roman Empire in some distant future. Um, now, this is honestly shocking to me. Like, I had never heard this before I read our little article in the Cambridge Companion to Homer. And when I told one of my other sort of classically-minded friends about it, he practically, like, fell over. Um, like, he was just like, how could this possibly be? We read the Odyssey. He was nowhere near Rome. Like, how does the, how do the Italians see Aeneas and Odysseus ever getting along at any point? Like, where the hell did that come from? And again, the answer seems to be partially Hesiod, but also partially just, who cares? Like, 
the Etruscans, the Italians, they seem to have their own cultural identity, which is certainly related and dependent on the Greeks, probably from the migrations that have come in, may very well be independent of the Greeks, may be involved with like trading routes or whatever. But at any rate, you know, surprise, one of those major archaeological discussions that we had earlier, one of those major finds that we were talking about that had very clear connections to Homer and the Iliad especially, was actually found here on this little island on the Bay of Naples. And if you're sitting there thinking, which possible archaeological discovery was it? Or more likely, I don't remember any of the archaeological discoveries. You showed me so many pots that day. It was the really cool one. It was the Cup of Nestor. Like, the Cup of Nestor, the oldest real clear evidence that, like, there's an archaeological tradition clearly working on the back of Homer or something from the Homeric tradition, was found in Naples, or rather just outside of Naples. Like, it's very clear that the Romans identify themselves with the Greeks and with the Iliad and the Odyssey so strongly that it's their sort of, you know, culture that embraces this greek pottery and this greek story um what's more you'll find as we sort of look at more archaeological records that as much as you might think oh okay so you know they have some connection to the greek side of the trojan war but they do at the end of the day identify with aeneas and the trojans more even that's not clear um as we'll talk about the romans the etruscans the latins they all seem to have a connection to these stories that far outweighs any clear-cut explanation here they just see themselves as heroic the same way that the greeks saw themselves as heroic they see themselves as following the line of achilles the same way that the greeks do even though there isn't necessarily a connection there um they just kind of co-opt the culture this is part of their heritage as well. It, uh, again, like hundreds of years are going by in this ancient world, in this archaic period. So the original reasoning for this may very well be lost. Who cares is kind of the attitude here. Um, they tell these stories. They can identify with these stories. You want to know why? Well, shut up. Like, it's our heritage too. So with that in mind, let's talk about the actual situation of Rome as Rome is starting to really be a thing. Um, this is a really cool map. I, I love it to death. I found it on Wikipedia. So again, I'm not digging too terribly deeply for my materials here, but you know, why fix what ain't broke? Like Wikipedia has some really awesome stuff. This is a linguistic map of Rome and its environs right at the beginning of the Roman conquests and expansions. Um, and the key to note here, because I have in fact cut off the key for clarity reasons, um, the key to understanding what's going on here is that each of these sorts of colors represent a different group of languages. Up here, marked 13, these are the Etruscans. And the Etruscans speak a very distinct language from the rest of the Latinate world at this point in time. Etruscan has no connection to Proto-Indo-European. Presumably their heritage is distinct from that of Proto-European. Um, but at the same time, they're clearly inheriting a lot of those Trojan stories and Greek myths because at this point, those are the currency of culture at this point in time. Um, but all of these other places in the green, these are various like Latin eight languages to be considered distinct from the blue areas, which are distinctly Latin. Um, the point that I'm trying to make here is that 
Rome is a product of a lot of cultures, a lot of traditions, a lot of languages, a lot of different groups of people all bumping into each other. And Rome is very much picking and choosing the best stuff to make up their sort of national identity. They will absolutely expand and take over the Etruscans and consider the Etruscans a part of Roman heritage. They will consider the Latins a part of Roman heritage. They will consider the sort of other Latinate nations a part of Roman heritage. And you better believe they're going to talk about how awesome it is that they're the inheritors of Troy and the Trojan War at the drop of a hat. So the Romans are a very kind of melting pot in their own way. Like America, it is very much the product of a lot of different cultures, a lot of different identities, all sort of bumping into each other, bleeding together, and the stories that they choose to tell are the ones that put them in the most flattering light, unsurprisingly. Uh, but let's move forward out of the archaeological records so much and into the Rome that history actually tells us quite a bit about. Let's talk about the Roman Republic. Um, now, again, the key sort of characteristic of the Roman Republic is the Senate. And this is not an actual picture of the Senate or an archaeological reproduction. I'm going to be using a lot of contemporary or modern sources on this one just because they do a pretty good job of describing the, you know, battles and scenes and important stuff about the Roman Empire. Because, fun fact, the Renaissance is obsessed with Rome and that obsession is not going to go away in the future. Um, so this is an artist's sort of imagined version of the Roman Senate, namely Cesare Macari or Machiari um, in 1888 paints this particular fresco. Um, this is Cicero denouncing Catiline and you can see Cicero like absolutely wrecking poor Catiline over here um, while the rest of the Roman Senate clearly tries to distance themselves from him. Um, this is roughly what you would imagine the Senate to look like. This is roughly what we think the Senate probably did look like. The Roman Senate has been depicted in any number of movies, paintings, so on and so forth. I didn't really feel it necessary to find specifically an archaeological representation that doesn't actually do much to tell us about what's going on there. The key to the Roman Senate is that it is a representative government. Unlike the Greeks with their whole democracy thing, um, not every citizen of Rome gets to vote. Um, Rome is a huge city by even ancient standards. Like, it is enormous, it is storied, and the aristocracy has been running the show for a very long time, just as the Greeks have a sort of representation by a state situation where only the lord of the household gets to vote. The Romans have something similar, where various representatives of various families will stand in for an entire district of Rome, or as the city and its empire expands, the various provinces that Rome has under its control. So basically, the heavy hitters of various families, and the heavy hitting families especially, will be the ones to ultimately decide what happens in the Roman Senate. All these dudes will get together and they will in fact pass their laws and make their decisions according to votes, much like the Greek system, but much more selective than the Greek system. So it is in fact preserved quite a bit from all that demagoguery problems that we saw in the past because it is only nobles allowed in the Roman Senate. And fun fact, in case you're curious, like if you start talking about the American system of government and, you know, what were the founders thinking when they were in fact putting together the Constitution, you better believe that they were basing their government much more on the Roman system than they were on the Greeks. 
democracy was kind of secondary to the founding fathers the republic government was much more important because they wanted to avoid tyrants read any of their correspondence and you will see them being absolutely paranoid about tyrants as well as like accusing each other of being tyrants like you know thomas jefferson and george washington exchanging letters that are like no you're a tyrant no you're a tyrant no you're opening the door for it's a, this whole thing um, suffice it to say, the Roman Senate is the cornerstone of Roman identity and the cornerstone of Roman government. And like I said, it is primarily run by aristocrats, rich folks, important families that have been in Rome for many, many generations, or at least claim to have been in Rome for many, many generations. Um, and one of the things that all these aristocrats have in common is that they love their Homer. Uh, this is the Francois tomb at Volci. Um, and this fresco is a reproduction from Khan Academy, and as much as it is pretty rough here, it is also pretty dang obvious what is being depicted. If you can't see it, that's fine. It is kind of not obvious for, you know, our standards. I couldn't figure it out at first glance. This is Achilles! He is sacrificing his Roman or Trojan prisoners for Patroclus, who is depicted here as a spirit, like, watching over his shoulder and being apparently very happy at the fact that Achilles is killing all these young boys for him. I don't know. Neither do you, I suspect. At any rate, this is a pretty decent indication of what's going on in the Roman consciousness. Lots of Roman rich dudes were being buried in tombs like this one with wall-to-wall -wall frescoes depicting Homeric scenes, as well as scenes of Etruscan history, as well as scenes of Latin history, as well as other sort of distinctly Roman mythological scenes. Like, it's clear that the Iliad and the Odyssey were part of the makeup of the Roman identity in this sense. The whole Roman mythological tradition embodied the Iliad and the Odyssey, as well as many other traditions too but notice too that the romans are identifying themselves with achilles here um they wouldn't be painting pictures of achilles killing trojans if that wasn't to them something good so again it is very noteworthy here that the romans very much identify themselves with the greek side of this war at this period in history even more than they do with the trojan side likewise at the tomb of orcus the tumba della orca um, we have some really fragmentary pictures here, but many scholars have uh, declared and sort of argued that the, this is in fact a depiction of Odysseus meeting with all those dead spirits in the uh, Odyssey chapter 11, I believe. Um, there is definitely a panel that shows the spirit of Agamemnon, Ajax, and Achilles all hanging around, which again is directly from not just the tradition surrounding odysseus but the odyssey of homer itself um this depiction i believe is more to do with hades and persephone depicted here um but it is messy and again i don't presume to know exactly what the deal is my understanding is the scholars are still debating what exactly the tome of orcus or tomb of orcus depicts um but as you'll see from our writer in the Cambridge Companion to Homer, uh, Joseph Farrell, writing his Roman Homer essay, he is quite convinced that this, as well as the tomb that we saw just a moment ago, is pretty proof positive as evidence that rich Romans liked to be identified with not just Homeric heroes, but Greek Homeric heroes. They too respected and revered Odysseus. They too respected and revered Achilles. They saw Odysseus as being one of the primary founders of Rome, as wild as that may be given the tradition that we've been talking about thus far. Clearly, Homer has been adopted and co-opted 
by the Romans, by the Roman elite especially, and by sort of Roman culture generally. So if you were a rich Roman dude talking in the Senate and trying to get your will done, chances are you're using Homeric language, identifying with Homeric heroes, and basing your decisions off of a Homeric system of values. In short, the Romans are Homer fans too. Um, the Romans and their empire is very much shaped by the Iliad and the Odyssey, just as the Greek culture was, as we talked about last week. Um, now, with that in mind, we got to hit a couple of the high points of the Republic era of Roman rule in order to get to all the really big, exciting stuff that's going to happen to Homer under the Roman watch. Um, and you really can't talk about the Roman Republic without talking about the Second Punic War. Um, I'm not going to get like into huge detail. I know some historians just love taking part the Second Punic War. It is one of the coolest parts of Roman history and also really well documented thanks to Livy, who we'll talk about in a moment. But one of the absolutely most awesome things about the Second Punic War is that Rome is up against an enemy that is very much their equal. This is the age of Roman expansion. They are no longer sitting quietly and letting things happen to them. They have very much taken over practically the entire peninsula of Italy. They've absorbed the Etruscans when the Etruscans tried to take them over. They've absorbed all those Latinate states that we've talked about. So by the 4th or 4th century or so, they are becoming a real power and a real threat in the Mediterranean. Which makes the Phoenician colony, and by that, at this point, they're completely their own empire. The Phoenicians, as you'll remember, took over just a bit of the North African peninsula around Tunisia. And they founded a city there called Carthage, which became very much its own thing and became very powerful in its own right. Um, and this became the primary rival of Roman development as they tried to expand across the Mediterranean. So in the Second Punic War, the Romans and the Carthaginians go to blows against one another. And the Carthaginian leader, Hannibal, takes his war elephants, sails them across the Mediterranean into, like, France and Germany, and then marches his elephants across the Alps to get to Italy and to march into Rome. A long, protracted series of battles ensues. Basically, the long and the short of it is that the Romans manage to harry Hannibal and wear away his army until finally he has to, like, retreat back to Carthage, at which point Scipio Africanus, so named because he is the great warrior who conquered Africa, sails down to Carthage and sacks the city with his Roman army, ending the Second Punic War very much in favor of the Romans. And this, defeating their primary enemy of Carthage and basically gutting their ability to contest the Mediterranean world, leads the Romans pretty much undisputed masters of the Mediterranean. So they expand very rapidly. Um, so you'll note, like, this map quite conveniently and quite concisely presents the Roman expansion over the hundred years during and following the Second Punic War, um, that they had basically con completely controlled Italy and the surrounding islands and some territory here and there around 200 BCE. But after conquering Carthage, they very much just start running the show. After the Punic Wars, after the Macedonian Wars, they conquer all of Greece, they conquer a good bit of Anatolia, they conquer great quantities of Spain and France, at this point Gaul, as well as North Africa, where Carthage used to be located. The Roman Empire is very much the power in the ancient world at this point. Um, now I should emphasize... Because the Romans have taken over Greece, this has caused some interesting friction. 
remember, the Romans do largely identify as Greek in many ways. As we talked about, the Etruscans, the Latins, they seem to have some deep like archaeological and, uh, and cultural connections to the Greek world. Um, so the Romans pick up on that, they adopt this sort of Greek culture, but now that they are actually in charge of the territory that gave them Homer, things get a little messy. Um, now you'll remember when we left the Greeks, we had a sort of different set of problems and issues. Namely, the Greeks had just taken over the entire ancient world thanks to Alexander the Great. And at, at this point, the Greek Empire extends way beyond Macedonia here, all the way through Asia Minor, Anatolia, into Persia, and all the way to the Indus River. But as I mentioned, Alexander the Great only lived so long, and when he died, his generals basically split up the empire and turned it into its own thing. Um, so, in the process of all this conquest, in the process of taking over the, the Greek Empire of Alexander, what we end up with here is... Romans basically controlling the entire world. One great empire falls, another great empire is erected in its place. Now that's not to say that the Romans control all of Persia and all the way to the Indus River the way that the Macedonians did, just that they control the primary uh, Greek side of the empire. They absolutely gut um, the two Macedonian slash inheritors of Alexander the Great, the two sort of sub-empires that make up Greece and Asia Minor and even, like, uh, Egypt and North Africa to some degree. The Romans are still very much a Mediterranean-only enterprise at this point, but that, too, will soon change. Um, the key here, though, is that, remember, when Alexander the Great takes over the entire world, he does so and he brings Greek culture with him. Now everybody from Greece to India to Egypt reads Homer, knows the Greek myths, recognizes the Greek gods, speaks the Greek language, trades in Greek coin. When the Romans take over Greece, they expect that that's how it's going to work here, too. Like, all of a sudden, the Greeks will all speak Latin, and they will all read Roman myths, and they will all identify with Roman myth myths, and so on and so forth. But that's not how this goes. Greek is still too strongly entrenched in the ancient world. The Romans cannot successfully supplant it. In the hundreds of years of trying... Greek will stubbornly remain the trade language of the Mediterranean world and even spread throughout the rest of the Roman Empire to places where the Greeks didn't used to be, like Spain and North Africa. Um, this is going to cause problems. On the one hand, for us, this means that Homer and Homer's legacy in Greece, if anything, just grows as a consequence of the Roman Empire. Where you would think that this national poem, this epic that is specifically and distinctly Greek, would get very much snuffed out by Roman conquest, the opposite, in fact, happens. Because remember, the Romans are primed for this. The Romans, too, see the Homer the Homeric epics, the Iliad and the Odyssey, as being foundational to who they are. So it just grows, it spreads, but it changes in the process. Homer being the primary mode of education for the Greeks now becomes Homer is the primary mode of education for the Romans. Everyone in the Roman Empire is exposed to Homer in some respect. The rich are reading it, the poor are hearing it, everybody is basing their society, their values, their education on it. So Homer is just getting more important, not less. Now, this whole era of the Roman Republic very much ends in violence. 
Um, namely, there is a very strict law in Roman rule that generals are not allowed to get too much power, certainly not allowed to overthrow the Senate, and to protect this, they have this rule about no army is allowed to cross the Rubicon, the river that sort of borders on Rome. Well, Julius Caesar is this very enterprising, very ambitious general who has been given a great deal of power by Roman authorities because he seems to be very successful at taking over all kinds of stuff. But Julius Caesar is getting a little big for his britches, disobeys the Roman Senate a few too many times, and the senators respond by commanding him to come back to Rome. This is almost certainly an indication that they are going to try him, probably court-martial him, possibly exile or execute him. So rather than just hang his head and quietly and humbly accept whatever punishment Rome is going to, like, heap on his shoulders, Caesar crosses the Rubicon with his army, effectively holding the Senate hostage until they declare him dictator, i.e. temporary and emergency ruler of Rome, which very quickly starts to look permanent. The senators freak out about this, realize that this is a horrible situation, that the entire fate of Rome may very well be at stake, and that Caesar may very well be a power-hungry tyrant trying to upend the entire Roman institution, so they murder the shit out of him. It is said that on the Ides of March, Caesar was murdered by something like 13 senators stabbing him like dozens of times on the actual steps of the Senate itself. One of the most horrific acts in the history of the Roman Empire and the history of the ancient world in general. And this whole situation plunges the entire empire into a civil war. On the one hand, the senators are convinced that they are the rightful rulers of Rome. On the other hand, Caesar's family, including their the army at this point, which is still loyal to Caesar and his family, sort of fight back against them. And ultimately, Caesar's family wins in the persons of Mark Antony and Octavian, uh, who will become Caesar Augustus. Once the dust settles, all the senators who were responsible for the murder of Caesar have been themselves killed, either by enemies or at their own hand. And now it falls to Mark Antony and Octavian to fight it out and figure out which one of them is in fact going to run the empire. Spoiler, it's Augustus. Um, Augustus Caesar turns out to be the first Caesar to really wield the power of an emperor in the Roman Empire. Much as Julius Caesar claims the imperial sort of lordship for himself with his uh, bid to become kind of perpetual dictator, Augustus is the one who entrenches this, puts it into law, puts it into practice, and lives as emperor until his death, at which point he is succeeded by his family, who then begin a line of emperors that will extend throughout the Roman history to uh, ahead of us. Um, so Augustus is kind of a huge deal, and it is Augustus's rule that really changes Roman culture as well as Roman government. See, Augustus's power, he knows, is a bit fragile. He recognizes the fact that Julius Caesar had effectively seized power through this sort of illegal rebellion, a civil war. And there have been people who have tried to do this in the past, like Coriolanus, or for that matter, Catiline, who we saw Cicero berating in the Senate not several paintings ago. Um, so Augustus knows that his power is not terribly stable, and he solves this by appealing, as Julius Caesar did, to the people. 
he institutes a series of cultural reforms, reforms that sort of elevate the presence and power of Rome in the popular consciousness and the popular culture, emphasizing myths that glorify Rome over other powers like Greece and Carthage and so on and so forth, as well as instituting a pretty draconian policy of moral policing. Uh, remember that Octavian has to also not just seize power from the Senate, but also from Mark Antony. So when a, one of Augustus's main strategies in discrediting Mark Antony is accusing Mark Antony of sleeping with the horrible sleep witch, you know, Cleopatra of Egypt, who is messing with his mind and actually has designs on the empire herself. Now, this is totally true. Cleopatra is trying to get as much power as she possibly can. But it doesn't change the fact that Augustus turns what is effectively a power play, a political move, into a sex thing. And now sleeping with random women is very much on the out in the Empire, further exacerbated by the fact that Augustus' own children are engaged in some fairly illicit relations as well, and the whole thing turns into a giant mess. So... In this moment in the Roman history, in the first century BC into the first century AD, we'll talk about that in a moment, Caesar or Augustus Caesar is doing a lot of changes and emphasizing a lot of characteristics that are going to become normal in Rome to come. Namely, emphasizing Roman superiority over all other cultures and identities, including and especially the Greeks. Um, as well as instituting a policy of what the Greeks have been calling Stoicism, i.e. self-restraint, discipline. There have been a lot of Stoics in Roman government for a long time at this point. Even Cicero is kind of identified with Stoicism, though he refuses to sort of clearly state that he identifies with it. Um, Augustus makes Stoicism basically de rigueur of Roman politics. If you want to stay in good graces, you will practice Stoicism. This is a typically Roman philosophy, emphasizes typically Roman values like militarism and personal strength and purity and not, you know, getting bogged down by like uh, pleasures and drinking and so on and so forth. And Augustus is not going to tolerate anything that doesn't speak to this particular virtue because, again, that's how he got one over on Mark Antony. Mark Antony's dissipated lifestyle is what caused him to ultimately be destroyed because... Augustus very much capitalized on that, basically instituting a moral panic of the sort that we saw, you know, back when Clinton was sleeping with people in the White House, not to get overly political here. But there are a lot of parallels between, like, contemporary populism and Roman imperial domination. Um, ask me about it sometime. You'll get way more than you bargained for. Um, suffice it to say, the way that Caesar kind of gets this done is there are a series of Roman poets throughout the 1st century BC into the 1st century AD, who really start to recharacterize and recontextualize Roman identity and Roman history in a way that can be parlayed for political points. In short, Romans aren't interested in art unless that art is also kind of propaganda. Which means we're going to see a very different character from Roman poetry than we will see from Greek poetry generally. 
where the Greeks are predominantly concerned with the legacy behind them, preserving the mythic stories and emphasizing their values and possibly twisting and turning them in order to emphasize new morality, the way that Euripides and Plato are, the Romans are very much about let's return to form. Let's talk about how awesome Rome is, how awesome its history is, how awesome its mythology is, and let's tell those stories that emphasize Roman rule, Roman superiority, Roman distinctness, Roman identity. And you gotta talk about Virgil in this context. Virgil is the clearest, most obvious example of a Roman poet basically doing the emperor's job and propagandizing Roman identity to the Roman people. Um, we are going to be reading a decent chunk of the Aeneid, which is Virgil's primary claim to fame here. Virgil did compose other poems, um, mostly of a totally non-political and non-heroic, like epic Roman identity sort of character. Uh, but Virgil's Aeneid is the major Roman epic that will endure for many centuries to come and very much supplants earlier Roman epics in popular consciousness, in the educational system, and will one day be considered the greatest epic poem ever written. Virgil's Aeneid is basically the Iliad and the Odyssey smashed into one book telling the story of how Aeneas escapes from Troy and ultimately founds Rome. So as much as this is an epic poem, it is very much a mercenary epic poem, an epic poem hit, so to speak. It is definitely a work of propaganda telling us about how awesome Roman identity is and enforcing the significance of the Roman Empire and identity as being derived from Troy especially and notice no Odysseus to be found here. In fact, it is frequently emphasized throughout Virgil that Aeneas can do everything Odysseus can do and then some. He overcomes many of the obstacles that Odysseus has to suffer through because we're not talking about the Greek fatalistic perspective anymore. We're not interested in some, you know, arbitrary, cruel, uncomprehending fate governing all of our lives. No, the Romans rule their own lives, damn it, and fate is their bitch to play around with as they see fit. Um, so Virgil's Aeneas can totally do things like take out Scylla or totally overcome Charybdis. Like, Aeneas does not have these problems. Aeneas is not some long-suffering dude who is just beaten the crap out of the way Odysseus is. No, he is commanding and powerful and he breaks hearts and he escapes enemies and he doesn't take 10 years to get from place to place. He can do it in like one. Come on. What kind of wimp is this Odysseus guy anyway? Additionally, the back half of Virgil's Aeneid, much of which we're going to skip, unfortunately, in this class, is very clearly derived from the Iliad, as it describes Virgil's, or Virgil's Aeneas bumping into the Latins, fighting against them in Iliadic style, even giving the Latins this big hero that Aeneas has to overcome, just like Achilles has to overcome Hector. But at the end of the poem, rather than like, the, the, the Latins were devastated and it's this giant tragedy, the way that it is in the Iliad, Virgil makes it out that Aeneas and the Latins just like both mutually appreciate how awesome each other are and agree to just live peaceably forever after and be part of like the same empire that will one day found Rome. Like it's not subtle. And as we read it, you'll notice how unsubtle it actually is. Like there's literally a passage we're going to read where Aeneas is consulting like dead spirits, just like Odysseus did. And they're going to tell him about how awesome Rome is going to be. You know, Odysseus talks to Tiresias and Tiresias is like, you're going to have to go on this epic journey and find this guy who doesn't know what an oar is. And it's going to take you a lot of time. And it's going to really suck. 
Virgil's Aeneas goes and talks to, you know, his prophet, and he's like, you're gonna be awesome, and everything you do is gonna be awesome. And by the way, have I mentioned how awesome Rome is? Like, let me tell you about how awesome Rome is. It's not subtle. It's not subtle at all. And you very much get the idea throughout reading the Aeneid that this is very much like, oh, that old Homer guy? Like, you still read Homer? Homer's boring and stupid. Look at how awesome the Aeneid is. The Aeneas can do everything that Achilles can do and everything that Odysseus can do, and he can do it twice as fast backwards and in heels. Like, forget your Homer nonsense. This is where it's really at. This is what real epic poetry is about. Now, this picture on the side here is actually a page from what is a apparently shockingly well-preserved 5th century illuminated manuscript of the Aeneid to give you an idea of, again, the Aeneid was considered awesome by many people for a long period of time, and it's going to be a long time, like 18th, 19th century, before people start to think that, hey, actually, maybe Homer is better than Virgil in, at all. Um, like, this is, in fact, a, a document preserved and digitized by the, the Digital Vatican Library, which, God bless them, like, keeping this stuff going. Um, but yeah, like, Virgil has been around for a long time, and as you'll see in Dante, he is considered the greatest epic poet who ever lived for the better part of 1,500 years and change. Um, so do not underestimate him as much as I'm going to try and emphasize how much he is kind of propagandizing. This is a great work of art in its own right and has been considered a great work of art by many, many great artists, great critics, great thinkers, great philosophers for many centuries of Western history. Um, the Roman attempt to supplant Homer with Virgil was largely successful for a very long time. But it doesn't change the fact that at the end of the day, the Romans only wrote the, the Aeneid, Virgil only wrote this poem to get out from under the shadow of Homer. Like, this is a reaction to Homer. Homer drips off of every page of the Aeneid as much as it is an attempt to make a distinctly Roman epic poem. In order to beat Homer, you have to be Homer, in short. So you don't get that far away, in all honesty. But Virgil's not the only player or poet and thinker who is kind of engaged in this propagandizing business. This is Ovid. And Ovid is honestly more fun to talk about than Virgil, because while Virgil is doing his one thing and he does it really well and he, like, turns, you know, the culture upside down in doing so, Ovid's just out to have fun. Um, Ovid also lived in the latter half of the first century BC into the early parts of the first century AD. Um, but Ovid's poetry is much less obviously polemical. Um, the big one that everyone remembers of Ovid's is the Metamorphoses. And the Metamorphoses is kind of an epic poem, kind of not an epic poem. It kind of works as an anthology. In effect, what Ovid is doing is he is turning the Greek myths into Roman poetry. Um, and in doing so, he is more than happy to supplant the name of Greek gods with Roman names. He is happy to change any Greek myths that he finds uh, discreditable with Roman alternatives. He is more than happy to focus on specifically Roman myths, like, again, that of Aeneas coming to Rome in the first place, as well as numerous early Roman leaders. Um, and Ovid is turning all of these Greek myths into a much more artistically composed library than Apollodorus ever did. 
Like, reading Apollodorus, you know that you are reading a library, a collection. He reminds you frequently that he's just archiving this stuff. Ovid turns Greek myth into art. He's kind of wonderful that way. And Ovid's metamorphoses are, in many cases, the, like, d decided form of the Greek myths um, as we understand them today. Like, Phaeton is totally an Ovid thing at this point. Atalanta is almost exclusively told by Ovid's form. Even the really famous story of Orpheus going into the underworld to save Eurydice is told by Ovid and is probably most characteristically told by Ovid. So in some ways, he very successfully co-opts Greek mythology and turns it into Roman mythology. Um, but that's not Ovid's only claim to fame. Ovid also publishes a book called The Art of Love, where he kind of satirically and ironically talks about how much fun it is to sleep with other men's wives at exactly the time that Augustus is dealing with his own sort of problems in his family with his children getting involved in fraternizing with people they're not supposed to fraternize with. So Ovid gets very banished. Um, and Ovid is very much kicked out of the Roman Empire to Tomis, this little backwater province where he will live out the rest of his days until he dies, exiled and very much humiliated and disgraced. Um, Ovid is interesting as a consequence. He is a typically Greek-ish poet insofar as he just does what he wants and he writes about what he wants to write about. But this is not a time for typically Greek poetry and Augustus isn't going to put up with this crap. On the one hand, we should note, Ovid is a distinctly Roman poet. He is taking Greek myth and turning it into Roman myth. He is definitely propagandizing and polemicizing a lot of the myths that have come before, and in the process making something of great and serious artistic value. Like, I would honestly say I prefer the Metamorphoses over the Aeneid, given my druthers, just because, again, I cannot get over the fact of how much the Aeneid is just ripping off Homer, where that's not the case in Ovid. He is doing something really cool and original. But on the other hand, it is Romanizing Greek myths. It is turning Greek culture into Roman culture. It is another attempt to sort of co-opt this dominant force in the Mediterranean world and turn it into something that can serve the Roman identity, serve the Roman, Roman political agenda. But I also kind of love Ovid because he screwed up so badly. Like, I've read parts of The Art of Love, at least in translation. I can't read Latin. Um, and it's hilarious. It's wonderful. It's delightful. I teach part of it in my uh, Philosophy of Love and Friendship class over at Ramapo. And it's just a joy. Um, but it's also just silly and frivolous in a time where Romans cannot afford to be silly and frivolous. One of the great damages of the new imperial line of ruler in, in Rome is that we cannot afford just being fun anymore. The Romans used to have a really good sense of fun. It is kind of gone now because it is all about conquest and it is all about taking shit over and it is all about being the biggest, baddest guy in the Mediterranean swimming pool. Um, so much for Ovid. That brings us to the historians, though. As we talked about with the Greeks, uh, history is very much rooted in mythology. You know, Herodotus and Thucydides are both pulling a lot of pages from Homer in writing their respective histories of the Greco-Persian War and of the Peloponnesian War. The Romans, though, because their cultural identity is so strong at this particular moment, gives rise to a bunch of hardcore historians. Um, the first one that I want to emphasize is this guy, Titus Livius. 
Um, he was a Roman historian, again, B.C. into A.D., through that key century when Augustus is ruling and very much sort of on top of the situation. He wrote this huge work called Ab Urbe Condita, From the Founding of the City, which is usually translated as the history of Rome, because that's what it is. It's literally, like, a huge, wide-ranging history of Rome, all the way back to its mythological origins and Aeneas and Romulus and Remus and the other famous founders, all the way to the present, i.e. under Emperor Augustus. And this huge undertaking takes literally 142 volumes to successfully write. Like, this is a massive, massive undertaking. Possibly the most compendious history ever undertaken at this point in history. Um, however, most of them are gone. We've lost most of them. This is a huge, like, clearly important work of literature. The Romans loved this stuff, especially because it was, again, very distinctly Roman, very distinctly celebrating Roman ideals. But to this day, only the coolest parts tend to survive, which it's cool that it's the coolest parts. Like, Livy's whole history of the Second Punic War survives. His story of the, the Third Macedonian War, when, like, Rome conquers Greece, effectively survives. As well as all of his discussion of the mythic origins of Rome, Aeneas and... Uh, Romulus and Remus and some of like the early lawgivers like Numa Pompilius um, all of those have managed to make it to the modern day and it is a, worth a read like I teach some of it in my uh, mythology class it's honestly kind of fun to go through if you can handle all of these names and characters who you know lived a thousands of years ago um now importantly again like there are a lot of things that do survive Aeneas's landing in Italy is characterized by Titus or uh, Titus Livius um the founding of Rome by Romulus and Remus is very much there but Livy frequently emphasizes throughout his telling of the mythological elements that they are mythological like he wrinkles his nose when it's said that Romulus and Remus were raised by she-wolves or that they were sired by Ares like Livy's just like that sounds like mythological nonsense to me and we don't need any of that here we're trying to do real history not like mythology so by now it's very clear that the there is a clear distinction between the two disciplines um, that the Romans like the Greeks have recognized that there should be a category of history that separates all the supernatural events from the events that could have occurred naturally um, Livy too is taking into consideration a great deal of witnesses and resources and scholarship much as Thucydides did in his own time um, but the other thing that I should definitely emphasize about Livy is that he has a very moral agenda throughout his text as well. When he opens Aberbe Condita, he emphasizes the reason why he's setting pen to paper, the reason why he is stressing all of this history and, you know, writing 142 volumes is because he wants to show Romans what real Romans look like. Not these crappy, rich, coddled Romans of the 1st and 2nd century might... No, 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 no. We're talking about, like, real Romans, manly Romans, Romans who kicked ass, Romans who fuck, in short. Um, these Romans were, again, very much in line with Augustus's policy of Stoicism. These Romans resisted temptations, did not succumb to it. These Romans weren't effeminate or, like 
sexual like the Greeks. No, they were tough and strong and militaristic like the Spartans. If you're going to have to take a Greek exemplar, take the Spartans in most cases. Um, and he emphasizes, especially in the sec his discussion of the Second Punic War and the Third Macedonian War, the Roman character at that time. We could only have overcome these huge obstacles in our history if it because we had strong masculine men, men who were capable, men who deprived themselves of all these pleasures, men like, you know, Scipio Africanus, the conqueror of Africa, like, those guys were so awesome because they didn't take crap and they didn't get coddled and they didn't get soft. Um, so Livy is, as much as he is doing sort of distant history without that mythological bent to it, he still is doing propaganda in some sense. He still has an agenda that aligns with Augustus Caesar's. And while his, you know, history is still unparalleled and still consulted by Roman historians all the time today, it's one of the major sources of Roman history, it should be kept in mind that he definitely has an agenda. His bias is coloring his treatment of the facts. Now, we also have to talk about this guy, Plutarch, or at least we think this is Plutarch. This is just known as head of a philosopher, but it's like usually assumed to be Plutarch. Um, Plutarch was another major Roman historian, later than most of our other writers that we've talked about so far. He is totally first and second century AD, so living after Augustus, but still very much engaged in the same kind of Romanizing policy that Augustus kicked off. Namely, he writes this work called Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans. Plutarch himself is actually living in Greece. He is Greek-taught, he is writing in the Greek language, unlike many of these writers who are very deliberately and very specifically composing their works in Latin to emphasize the Latin language. Plutarch is not quite doing so much, but Plutarch actually does form a sort of key part of this Romanizing business. Namely, in the Parallel Lives, what he does is he takes one major Greek figure, political figure, or leader, or general, or lawgiver, or whoever, and puts it side by side with what he considers the equivalent Roman leader. So every one that the Greeks can produce, the Romans can also produce, and usually better. Um, although he will, like, characterize, you know, some Greeks do win out over Romans. He actually uh, closes his, like, biographies with comparisons between the two where he, like, measures them up. Um, but his comparisons are often very much intended to glorify the Roman, uh, the Roman character and put them on a level with the Greek person who would otherwise be celebrated and, historic and like, historically uh, represented and admired. So, for example, he compares Theseus the mythic savior of Athens, founder of Athens, defeater of the Minotaur, with Romulus, the mythic creator of Rome. Thus putting them both on a pedestal and very much emphasizing, you know, our mythology is every good, bit as good as Greek mythology. Likewise, he takes Lycurgus, the lawgiver we talked about from Sparta, the one who, you know, said that all the laws had to be oral, who emphasized that, like, all children had to be taught to be warriors and they had to kill any child that didn't, like, make the cut. He compares that with Numa Pompilius, the much more civilized and the much more kind of capable and uh, like subtle lawgiver of the early Roman Empire. Um, he compares Pericles, the great like creator of public works and the, the sort of mastermind behind the Acropolis, with Fabius, another great sort of Roman philanthropist who also spent a lot of time sort of financing and, and supporting uh, Roman 
public works and projects as well. He compares even the bad Greeks and the bad Romans. Alcibiades, that jerk who totally screwed over the Greek fleet and then immediately defected to Sparta, just thus ruining Athens entirely. He compares with Coriolanus, the famous Roman leader who tried to overthrow Rome and become a dictator back when that was a bad thing instead of a good thing to do. Looking at you, Julius Caesar. Because naturally, when you do get to Julius Caesar, and you've got to talk about Julius Caesar, you're going to compare him to the friggin' Alexander the Great. Because Alexander the Great, conqueror of the world, is definitely comparable to Julius Caesar, who, like, conquered a lot of stuff and then overthrew his own government. Plutarch is, again, sort of elevating a lot of these Roman characters and sort of emphasizing their historical relevance and importance when compared to the already very well-established Greek figures who did very similar and very important things in their own right. Um, so as is the case with the Roman poets either borrowing or stealing directly from Homer in an attempt to supplant Homer and become better than Homer, in an attempt to sort of take... Uh, Roman history and make it superior to Greek history to make the Roman culture much more important than the Greek culture that has survived so far the Romans rewrite their history to match and will sometimes rewrite Greek history to match their vision of it as well now all of this is kind of happening at the same time as another really important historical event that nobody's realized is a really important historical event yet namely Christianity um, we keep talking about that whole BCAD divide. I keep stressing, you know, this poet and that poet, they all live from this period BC to this period AD. Any historian worth their salt will note that, and honestly, any of you will probably note as well, that it is really weird that we date our years to this supposed but apparently non-existent 0 AD slash BC, and that everything before that is before christ and everything after that is anno domini the year of our lord that's because zero a.d is supposedly the date that jesus christ was born p.s he wasn't it was probably they probably missed the mark a little bit if there was a historical christ and again like i don't even want to scratch the surface of that discussion at this point we will get there um the whole business of christianity is currently sort of bubbling under the surface of roman politics at this point um, like Livy will in fact drop a very short reference and a couple of other like Roman historians will note that there's been some unrest in Palestine lately due to this new sect of Jews apparently following around this guy who got crucified down there. But the Romans haven't figured out what the deal is with that just yet. Now we're gonna, not going to talk a whole lot about Christianity in this lecture. We are, however, going to talk about it a lot in the coming history lecture after we cover Virgil. Um, so gear up for that because this is in fact happening. This is in fact bubbling under the surface and this will in fact become more and more important as Roman history and as European history generally goes on. As for the actual business of Rome, this is its peak. Around 117-ish, Rome has reached as far as it is ever going to reach. It has conquered virtually all of Europe. It has conquered the whole of the North African coast of the Mediterranean. It has conquered all of Asia Minor and a decent chunk of the Arabian Peninsula. Like, it is the power. It is running the show. It is absolutely enjoying its privileges during the Pax Romanum, the great Roman peace promised and ushered in by Augustus, where few actual wars are going on outside of the Roman Empire and where finally the like 
the uh, armies can come to some kind of rest and just engage in peacekeeping business. That's not to say that there aren't problems, like revolts are becoming more and more frequent because, again, they've got this huge friggin' empire to maintain at this point, and it's becoming a bit of a bureaucratic nightmare trying to take care of all this land from the one central location of Rome itself. Um, so this comes with problems, but this is also the peak of Roman power. Much as even Augustus was emphasizing, you know, remember the Romans from before, remember the age of the Republic, make Rome great again, um, as much as that seems to be pointing to the Republic as the high point of the Roman Empire, really it's at this point that the Roman culture and the Roman political power is at its strongest, during this early period of the emperors. It is also at its most fragile. Um, it very quickly degenerates. Um, now, I'm not going to, like, try and get the entire business of the Roman Empire emperors, like, pounded into your skulls. You should definitely remember Julius Caesar. You should definitely remember Augustus Caesar. They are both hugely important and very much constitute, like, the major early transition from Rome under the Senate to Rome under the emperors. Um, definitely remember those guys. But other than that, don't worry about getting all of your emperors straight. There are a lot of good ones, like... Tiberius or Marcus Aurelius, and there are a lot of really terrible ones like Caligula or arguably Nero or, you know, definitely some of these assholes in the 50 years of military generals when everybody is assassinating each other left and right and Rome is literally going through like a general slash emperor slash praetorian guard member like every few weeks it seems. It's a mess. Um, but all of this chaos and all of this mess is accompanied by larger problems throughout the empire. There's religious dissent because those Christians are getting noisy, which is upsetting all of the traditional Roman pagans, as well as the newfangled pagan Zoroastrians who are becoming more and more dominant in Roman pop uh, culture. We have bureaucratic problems and administrative problems. We have legit revolts happening all over the place, left and right, as well as barbarian invaders, especially from Germania. It turns out there's a bit of a unsettlement of various Gothic groups around the, the European world. All this comes to a head, and finally the Emperor Diocletian says, fine, screw it, we're just going to divide up the empire into two parts, East and West Rome. Um, the Western Roman Empire will initially will be based in Rome itself, obviously, but the Eastern Empire is quickly turning into the richer and more important part. Fun fact, this is also where Greece is, this is also where Troy is, this is also the whole Anatolian business, and it is way wealthier than the West at this point. So, once again, the Western Roman Empire and its Latin culture is coming in second place to Greek culture. Sucks to suck, Romans. Looks like all of those poets that you got to do your dirty work may not have been all that successful after all. But anyway, Diocletian separates the empire into two distinct halves, makes an emperor and a sub-emperor in each half, and was basically like, okay, that should work for a while, and it totally doesn't. Within 50 years, the emperor Constantine, depicted here being ominous as all hell, um, shows up and takes over the entire emperor or empire, conquers everyone who gets in his way, first from his backwater post in the Western Roman Empire, and then ultimately conquering the entire Eastern Roman Empire, consolidating it under his rule, and then dividing it again. Um, Constantine ultimately relocates the capital, though. 
Rome will remain the capital of the Western Roman Empire, but Constantine founds a new city, names it after himself, Constantinople, and decides, okay, this is going to be the seat of the Eastern Roman Empire. This is going to be my administrative center. This is going to be the place where Rome is based from now on. And Rome and the Western Roman Empire can shove it. Um, this gives rise to a pretty ugly situation for Rome. Where the Western Roman Empire is the poorer, less well-organized, and weaker of the two halves of the, this particular empire, they will be the first to fall as a consequence, where the Eastern Roman Empire will actually thrive for many centuries to come under the name of Byzantium. Now, the other thing that we should definitely mention about Constantine and his whole business is that Constantine is also the one who legitimizes the Christian religion. At this same moment in the 4th century AD, Constantine basically shows up and says, Christians are my allies, and even goes so far as to say that he won this really important battle, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, in which he basically managed to consolidate his power over the Western Roman Empire with the help of the Christian God. Constantine isn't going to declare Christianity the official religion of Rome, that he will leave to his children and grandchildren, despite the one like brief rule of Julian the Apostate, who very much tries to make killing Christians cool again and very much fails. Um, Constantine very much solidifies the power of the Christians in the Roman Empire. And this actually becomes a hugely important historical decision because when Rome, the principality, in fact falls, it is conquered by the Ostrogoths who have been converted to Christianity by Arius, who, by the way, is a heretic. We'll talk about that later, um, maybe, or maybe not. Who's to say? Um, at any rate, Rome falls, but Roman religion survives. And while the Ostrogoth rule is going to be pretty temporary and the emperor or the self-declared emperor of the Ostrogoths is going to kind of fade away pretty quickly, the guy who's running the church in Rome, who is now calling himself the Pope, is going to be the biggest, most important player in the political world in Europe for many hundreds of years to come. That, for sure, we will talk about. On the eastern side, though, we're going to get a completely different story entirely. Constantinople sort of gets their bishops, their, their sort of patriarchs of the various churches in Constantinople and other major Christian centers like Alexandria and Antioch to sort of agree to Roman rule. And by Roman, we mean Byzantine, now that this is the Byzantine, or the empire based in Constantinople slash Byzantium. So the Byzantine Empire is going to thrive and continue to exist for several hundred years before it is ultimately destroyed during one of the Crusades. Whoops, that wasn't intentional, but these things happen. Um, suffice it to say that they're going to have a long and storied history. We'll probably touch on it in our next lecture, though we'll probably not focus on it a great deal. Um, if you're sitting there wondering, though, where the heck is Homer in all this, now that we're talking about Christianity a great deal, the key here is Homer never left. As much as the Romans have kind of tried to displace Homer, and as much as they are to some degree successful in displacing Homer, the actual command of the Greek language will be lost in the Western Roman Empire for quite a while, replaced by Latin, and therefore the only access that uh, the Western Roman Empire will have to Homer is in Latin translation and, and sort of descriptions and narratives and so on and so forth. It doesn't change the fact that it is still incredibly culturally relevant and valuable, as we will talk about. In the East, though, Greek has won. Like, they don't even bother to speak Latin in the supposed 
capital of the new Roman Empire. In Byzantium, the primary language is Greek. The Christians all speak Greek. The politicians all speak Greek. Greek won the day. And in fact, it is, weirdly enough, the Christians in Rome, the Pope and the monasteries and the other major religious figures who are going to be the ones keeping Latin alive many centuries after it should have very well faded into obscurity. But the other thing about that Eastern Roman Empire is that they are very much keeping Greek culture alive as well, including Homer. And that will become really interesting and important when, in fact, it bumps into all of the other people in the area, especially when Islam shows up and starts taking over large swaths of the Eastern Roman Empire. Though that we're probably not going to be able to talk about because I don't know anything about it. And I think it would be really awesome to do a study on how does Homer affect the Islamic world, but that will, you know, come another day. Suffice it to say, this is where I want to leave us as far as the discussion of the Roman Empire is concerned. I want us to recognize that Homer is here in the DNA of Rome from point A to point Z. Um, it does not ever leave. And despite the sort of cordial antagonism that Rome has with the Greek culture very much embodied and sort of represented by Homer, we need to very clearly state that they never truly get that far away from him. Um, he is still the sort of cornerstone of this entire Roman identity. Um, and even those writers who do try to supplant Homer ultimately just make his importance all that much more significant. On the one hand, many historians and archaeologists have argued that the reason why Roman citizens were required to read Homer during their education was so they could properly understand Virgil, but as our writer in the Cambridge Companion emphasizes, the reverse is likely true. Virgil was secondary. Everybody already knew Homer. Everybody already read Homer. Homer was widely taught, widely translated, widely accessible. Everyone sort of traded Homeric references. Cicero quotes him all the time in his correspondence and letters. Um, Homer was to the ancient Romans the way that Shakespeare was to English today. Um, their entire language is built on those references, those allusions. It is at the cornerstone of their culture. And as much as Christianity is going to be the dominant force in Europe for quite a while as a consequence of all these changes and moving and shaking and so on, we should very much emphasize that Christianity is also going to have to reckon with Homer at some point. And that reckoning we will talk about in significant detail because it is going to be the dominant way that the, Christ that the European world and the Western world generally will interact with Homer in the many years to come. Um, but that's, again, for another day. Uh, we'll talk about the fallout of the fall of the Roman Empire. We'll talk about the legacy of Christianity. And we'll talk about Homer's rise and fall in medieval Europe next time. Again, after we talk about Virgil and the Aeneid. In both cases, I look forward to talking about them, meaning both Virgil's Aeneid and the history of medieval Europe. I look forward to talking about them with you soon.